So you guys might want to get out um, your tape recorder or a picture camera or something. Because um, this might be the first ever sports illustration that I'm going to start my sermon with. <laughs> I know, I know. Can you believe it? Um, so I, I uh, ran track in high school for a short time. Hated it. Only did it because my friends were doing it. And... Um, and it was, it was rough. Uh, my little nephew is doing uh, track right now, and it r- reminded me, it's, it's an all-day event. You know, you go to these big track meets, and you're there for hours and hours waiting for your turn. Um, and moms are standing around giving out orange slices, and it's just, it's just altogether weird and strange. But one of the things I remember in track, um, especially in the relay races, was the handing off of the baton. Um, it seems like a simple concept until you actually try to do it, right? It's like the hurdles, too. I could run over one of those hurdles, right? I could do ten of those things. Then you try it and you fall on your face. The, 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 the trick is um, that the person in front of you has to start running when you're going to deliver the baton. So you have to hand it off almost at the same speed if possible. And so this guy's looking back, and there's all kind of forms they taught us how to grab the baton, and the person also reaching out and giving it. And there's always a few kids who end up, you know, going like, look like they're juggling uh, bowling balls instead of trying to catch the baton, right? And so it looks a little clumsy. Some people can do it really well. I wasn't one of them. Um, but here in this text today, we have the passing of the baton from Abraham to Isaac. Uh, and it looks a little clumsy. Looks a little clumsy. Um, Abraham and Sarah are dead. We spent a good amount of time getting to know them, didn't we? About 10 chapters we got to see them. Their long-awaited son, Isaac, was finally born by the power of God, and now it's his turn to take over as representative of the covenant. But what's interesting about the way these events are recorded is that not a lot of time is given to Isaac. This chapter 26 is like the most we get out of Isaac's life, right? We don't really get to know a lot about him. We got 10 chapters on Abraham and Sarah, but here, chapter, and we saw in chapter 25 about their children, right? Esau and Jacob, which uh, Joey preached. But God gave twins, providentially, because she was also barren, to Rebecca, and their names were Esau and Jacob. The older would serve the younger. Jacob loved Esau, Rebecca loved Jacob. Uh, and it's basically parenting 101. Um, that you shouldn't kill your marriage by choosing favorites <laughs> in, your, in your kids. Um, you train your children to be selfish, to be prideful, just like you're being when you do that. Um, and we see that play out in their lives. But Esau was the hairy hunter. Jacob was the quiet cook. And in a moment of weakness, we saw Esau is tired from hunting or whatever he's doing in the field. He comes back. In his weakness, and he says, I need a bowl of soup, man. And Jacob's like, I got a bowl of soup for you, all right, if, uh, if you'll sell me that birthright. And so this home would become even more divided because the rightful heir of the firstborn would now be transitioned to Jacob, unknown to Isaac and Rebekah. In the next several chapters, Moses spends a lot of time teaching about Jacob. But right here, right now, we get to learn about Isaac. So let's listen up, because this is all we get on Isaac, huh? Um, We don't want to miss the passing of the baton. 
the point of this text is that Isaac is to be confirmed as the new representative of the covenant and is immediately given trials of crisis, danger, wealth, and contention to strengthen his faith in Yahweh. We learn that King Abimelech is still kicking. We see him in this chapter. The same old sins are hard to depart from. In a lot of ways, we see Abraham come to life through the same problems that Isaac would experience. But the point for us this morning is that there are many different kinds of trials that you and I go through on earth sent to us by God's hand to strengthen our faith and to teach us to worship Him through and in adversity. Worshiping in adversity. So there's one quick caveat. I'm going to spend a little bit of time teaching on trials through this text. I'll try to go quickly. Um, But sometimes we look at trials as like, you know, any hard thing we go through, right? That's kind of how we use it. Um, But I don't know if that's totally true. Your stubbed toe may not be a trial sent from God, right? As much as it hurts. It's a bad thing, isn't it? But that may not be a trial from God. We, we sometimes fall into the trap of either thinking that every hard thing has some spiritual lesson attached to it, or we lean the other way, that God is completely removed from our lives, and He doesn't care about any of the hard things we go through, right? We, we can narrow down, I think, all the hard things into three simple categories. The first one is this. Hardship sometimes comes because we brought it on ourselves. We brought it on ourselves. We don't need to spiritualize consequences, right? The pain that came into Abraham's household when he went into Hagar was his own fault, his own sin, right? God did not bless that endeavor. And sin began to wreak havoc on their home through Ishmael and Hagar. The Bible uses the language over and over about sowing and reaping. And we see that sowing and reaping literally happen today um, with, uh, with Isaac. Proverbs twenty five twenty eight says, A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. So this is our lives when um, we have no self-control over ourselves and we allow sin to run the show. Uh, our lives become a wreck and we are incredibly vulnerable. Many times our hardships aren't trials. They are our own fault. In fact, Job had a legitimate trial. But what did his friends say? You must have sinned. You must have sinned. You must have sinned. This is how how similar they can feel and how similar they can look. Number two, hardship sometimes comes just because we live in a fallen world. The whole earth is under the effects of sin and corruption. Tornadoes, floods, earthquakes, plagues, disease... Cancer. Also, just somebody being really mean to you. Sometimes that's just the way it is. Because this world is broken. And it's not going to be fixed until Jesus fixes it once and for all. Um, it may not be that we invited these things into our lives. Or that you know we sinned and now we're reaping and sowing. But God is directly dealing with us. But, but maybe it's just that the world isn't perfect. Right? The world is full of sin. This is the way things are ever since the garden. Tragedies happen, and they are tragedies. But sometimes our only explanation is that this world is not the way it's supposed to be. That's one of the greatest counsels I can give. 
to you, and I have given many of you individually and privately. This world is not the way it's supposed to be. And so we bear with one another when we go through hard things. Um, but we remember, even though the world is not the way it's supposed to be, God is still good, and He still reigns. The third part, the third category is that hardship sometimes comes because a legitimate trial from God is necessary. And I've got some scriptures to share with you that you know well. First Peter 4. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as if something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. James 1 verse 2, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. God sends trials to His most dearly beloved children. I could have also added Hebrews. What father doesn't discipline his children? That he loves to see us grow, to see our faith increase. Well, it's not clearly being stated here in Genesis chapter 26 that as you know the baton is being passed, Isaac is you know immediately given all these trials from God. Um, we can see that the Lord uses all of these events to increase Isaac's faith, to increase his reliance on the God who keeps his promises, and we'll we'll see that in the text. But the greatest theme that we can take away from all of this is that Isaac goes through all this hard stuff in chapter 26, but continues to worship the Lord in the midst of adversity. So when crisis comes, we worship. When danger comes, we worship. When wealth and prosperity comes, we worship. When contention and hatred come, we worship. So the first one is trial by crisis. You can see in verse 1, the first trial. Now there was a famine in the land, besides the famine that was in the days of Abraham. This is the crisis. A family of four, right? Abraham, or, uh, Isaac, Rebecca, Esau, Jacob, plus all their people. And they ain't got no food. they strapped for cash. They're hungry. Hunger is a crisis. Hunger will not only destroy a family, hunger will destroy an entire nation. And about 150 years ago, Moses mentions here, there was another famine that Abraham faced, the father of Isaac. We saw that in chapter 12. What did Abraham do when the famine came to the land? He went to Egypt. And what's the first thing God says to do, not to do, to, to Isaac here, verse 2, the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land. I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands. I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. Don't do what dad did. Do what I say. And here's, you know, I don't know what the relationship of the Lord and Isaac has been like. We know he's an older man at this point. Uh, he was you know, around the age of 40 when he got married. Um, but uh, here he, he has the Lord speaking to him, telling him exactly what to do. Even though things ended well, though, with 
uh, Abimelech and Abraham at the end of their story, Abraham died. And they lost that relationship. It even says they stopped up the wells, right? And so whatever has developed over time, Isaac does not feel safe going to the land that the Lord tells him to go to, uh, the land of Gerar where the Philistines dwell. The Egyptians were dangerous. They were dangerous. Don't go there. But Philistines weren't you know, a bunch of sissies either. They're dangerous too. We'll get to that in a minute. But first of all, right, the Lord is speaking, making it clear that Isaac is the new representative of the covenant. God promised the nation through Abraham. He's going to give it, not through Ishmael, but through Isaac. And what does God say? Don't go to Egypt. I'll, you'll go where I tell you to go. Sojourn in Gerar. I'll be with you. And I will bless you. I'll give you the offspring. I'll keep the promises. All you need to do is go. Right? Just like Abraham, these promises will come through. Why is the Lord doing this through Isaac? Not because Isaac wasn't scared. Not because Isaac, you know, was particularly obedient and faithful. But because Abraham obeyed the Lord's charge, the Lord's commandments, the Lord's statutes, and his laws. That sums up pretty good all the laws of God. And this was a time before commandments, statutes, laws were even really a thing yet. The law of God had not yet been introduced. Moses is writing to sort of his own audience, um, showing them uh, like a pre-law that uh, Abraham was obeying. Um, But if Isaac would choose to obey the same way that Abraham chose to obey, things would go well. Hunger is a real crisis. Hunger is a real crisis. You you can't have a family the size of the heavens if you die of hunger. You can't inherit a land if you move away from that land. But the Lord says, Isaac, I will be with you. Is there anything more that needs to be said? I will be with you. And again, this comes back at the end of the chapter. Abimelech says, we can see that God is with you. They have nothing to say to him. This would be the first test as the baton is passed. The second trial is trial by danger. We see in verse 6 as they make their way to Gerar, Isaac settled there. When the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, she is my sister. For he feared to say, my wife, thinking, lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebecca, because she was attractive in appearance. So, first off, we've got to recognize that Isaac did initially obey. He went to Gerar, right? Didn't go to Egypt, as much as that might have tempted him. With all the food in the world they had in Egypt, he still went to Gerar. Uh, But now, this is the third time that we see this scenario play itself out, right? Abram and Sarai go to Egypt. And Abram's like, hey, Sarai, tell him you're my sister. Let's do that old, that old trick, right? A few decades later, Abraham and Sarah approach Gerar. Tell him you're my sister. They won't kill us. And now Isaac says to Rebekah as they approach Gerar, tell him you're my sister. That'll go well for us. And Isaac's really digging a hole, man, because at least Sarai or Sarah was his half-sister, right? At the best, Rebecca's like a third cousin, right? A distant cousin. Um, and she's not a sister at all, is the point. Uh, 
But the fear is the same as the last two stories. They're going to kill me if we don't do something. If we don't make up some kind of lie, right? A fear of man caused Isaac to lose his fear of God. It's the same lesson that Abraham had to learn. Twice. Perhaps the same lesson that you and I are still learning. Perhaps this is one of the great lessons we face in many of our trials sent to us by God. We read in 1 Peter, as we walk in exiles, as exiles, we, we fear the Lord. We don't fear man. We fear the Lord. In the face of danger, when our fragile lives are threatened and we don't seem so invincible for a minute there, whom do we fear? Whom do we trust? Whom do we have in heaven and on earth besides the Lord? It's kind of, kind of amazing, and most of you have I'm sure heard this story by now, uh, but James Coates is a pastor in Canada, right? Um, and he was arrested recently. He was imprisoned for a full month for publicly hosting worship services against COVID-19 regulations. Now, aside from any political opinions or what should or shouldn't have been done, here is an admirable dedication to Jesus above man. He went to prison for hosting these worship services, turned himself in. He was in his cell for 23 hours a day, most of the time. Uh, His wife and family were at home, worried to death. His life was literally in danger. And this is a modern-day example in a time of conviction and obedience to, to choose to believe that God is with me and will take care of me no matter the danger that comes our way. So he had a Bible study with the convicts till the charges were dropped, and we say praise God. Meanwhile, missionaries like Adoniram Judson, William Carey, Hudson Taylor, David Brainerd, countless other men and women have been risking their lives for centuries for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Come hell or high water, we preach Christ. We fear God. Not man. Isaac would not face death in our text today, but he would face being caught in a lie. Another trait that separates these two stories is how he gets found out, right? In Egypt, the Lord sends plagues because Sarai was whisked away to Pharaoh's harem. And in uh, Gerar, the second time with Abraham, um, the Lord revealed himself to Abimelech in a dream and said, you're a dead man, right, if you don't return Sarah. And now this time, the Lord doesn't intervene at all. He just lets the window be open one day, and Abimelech looks out the window, and he sees Isaac and Rebekah laughing together. And this word we saw with with Ishmael at their baby shower for for Isaac when he was born, you remember? Um, That Isaac was laughing, or uh, that Ishmael was laughing with Isaac, and he was Kicked out of the place for it, right? So this, this you know, is kind of a tough word, but remember it has the connotation of guilt, like mocking, right? Not, not like an innocent laughter. It can refer to derogatory behavior. So it, it might have been that Isaac really was just laughing and playing with his wife. Maybe they're having a tickle fight. I don't know. Um, but it could also be that Abimelech saw them together reveling in their lie, dishonoring the king of all the Philistines, by duping them into believing that she was his sister. Either way, Abimelech rebukes him in the presence of all. He says, what have you done? 
Same thing he says to, to Abraham, right? What have you done to us? What are you thinking? Isaac failed to trust the Lord. But the Lord kept his promise to secure Rebekah as the mother of Israel. But then things take a sharp turn and things start going well in verse 12, doesn't it? He begins to sow and reap. And I call this point trial by wealth. Trial by wealth. A shorter point, but I think one worth mentioning. He sowed in the land. He reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him. The man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants, so that the Philistines envied him. Now the Philistines had stopped and filled the earth with the wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham, his father. So sowing and reaping, he's working, he's toiling, he's laboring, and, and it pays off. Um, but simultaneously, even though he worked hard, it says who blessed him? God, the Lord, Yahweh, made him rich. He became more wealthy than all the Philistines, more flocks, more herds, more servants, and they envied him for it. Isaac had felt the terror of crisis and the fear of danger, but now he would experience the threat of wealth, the threat of wealth. Wealth is not a bad thing. In in many ways, the Bible encourages us to invest and use our money well to save up for rainy days and things like that. But ultimately, our hope is not in our wealth. Our hope is not in our wallets. Our hope is in the God who supplies our every need. We trust the Lord who sends a penny. We trust the Lord who sends a $100 bill. We sow trusting the Lord of the harvest. But the Bible does give a great warning to those who are rich on earth. Ecclesiastes, a real fun book of the Bible, verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 10, says, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also vanity. When goods increase, they increase those who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? He would experience those, those leeches now firsthand, the Philistines, who hate him because of his wealth. And then in Matthew 19, Jesus says himself, Only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. So we have a really fast transition from Isaac being on the bottom to now he's kind of on the top by by God's hand. He's blessed him. And if Isaac loved his wealth, it would have been a great challenge for him. Pride and idolatry would have ensued, along with a host of other besetting sins that stem from the love of money. Again, wealth is not always bad, but it does invite bad things into our lives. If the Lord blesses you with wealth, you must be ready for spiritual warfare. The love of money is subtle and it sneaks in close to us. It's usually clothed in good deeds that we do or excuses for why we need it in order to live a certain lifestyle or support a certain uh, giving or donation. But ultimately, I believe the Lord will sometimes send us extra cash just to see where our heart truly lies. In the treasures of earth or in the treasures of heaven? This is to make us examine our hearts to see if we can say with the Apostle Paul, Philippians 4, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. I know in every circumstance I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger 
abundance and need, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Regardless of where Isaac's heart was, we can see the conflict that wealth brings. In this last one, trial by contention. Trial by contention. They envied him. Verse 16, they kick him out. Abimelech said to Isaac, go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. So Isaac departed from there. He camped in the valley of Gerar. He settled there. And Isaac dug the wells that had been dug in the days of, his, uh, of his Abraham, his father, which the Philistines had stopped after the death of Abraham. He gave the names of the... Um, he gave them the names that his father had given them. But when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well of spring water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdmen, saying, The water is ours. And so we see this play out three times um, where, where they, they fight now over, over the water. Abraham experienced the same thing during his time in Gerar. If you remember that, just a few chapters ago, the Philistines decided now, since Abraham was dead, to fill up his wells for some reason. I don't know. I guess they couldn't tend to him. They didn't want to. So Isaac is now left to dig up the old wells, and he gives them the same names that Abraham had named him. Um, the locals didn't like how wealthy he had become, so they say, go dig your own wells, right? Uh, but he didn't complain. He went. He did it dutifully, uh, and, and he does it honorably, naming them the same names. But as they dig the wells, the locals say, no, not that one. That one still belongs to us. No problem. We'll call that one Essek, right? It means contention. I'll dig another one over here. How about this one? Nope. That one's off limits too. Can't have that one either, Isaac. You, uh, you rich snob. So he says, we'll call this one Sitna, which means enmity. And finally, third time's a charm, right? They dig another well. They don't quarrel over it. They call this one Rehoboth, which means room or space. He says, the Lord has made room for us to dwell. He gives glory to God for his water, even though it was incredibly difficult to get. We have the haves and we have the have-nots here, right? They don't get along too good. The have-nots don't have, so they use the power that they do have to maintain control and act as if they are the ones in authority. They take advantage of Isaac, Knowing he's outnumbered in a foreign land, he literally just dug two wells for him. Right? Here you go. And they, he, he did give them some pretty snarky names, but he doesn't fight back. He kept right along. He gave God glory for the water. In the age of offendedness, how do you respond to contention? What do you do when somebody picks a fight with you? How do you respond to injustice? Somebody treats you wrong. We see the world writhing in anger when they've been done wrong. How does the church respond? We see people canceling one another, right? For having an opinion. But what do we do when people curse us, revile us, and call us names and treat us unjustly? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, one thing, you sure don't need a lawyer because you have an advocate. You have the Holy Spirit. Surely, because we are regenerated to a new and living hope by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can turn the other cheek. Surely, because zeal for the Father's house consumes us, we will not allow filthy talk to come out of our mouths. Surely, because God is God, 
and he is with us just as he was with Isaac, we can forgive people as we have been forgiven in Christ through God. We have God. Do your worst to us, world. Are you going to take God from us? No. Do your worst. The Lord will take care of our needs. Every Baptist knows Charles Spurgeon, right? The great preacher. You might even know a quote or two, but one thing you might know is that he was one of the worst treated pastors in history. His wife literally kept a scrapbook for a few years of some of the most unbelievable things that were said about her husband. One news article, a news article, wrote this about him. His style is that of the vulgar, colloquial, varied by rant. All the most solemn mysteries of our holy religion are by him rudely, roughly, and impiously handled. Common sense is outraged and decency disgusted. His rantings are interspersed with coarse anecdotes. A fellow pastor in his region wrote this about Charles Spurgeon. He said, I have most solemnly my doubts as to the divine reality of his conversion. Homeboy ain't even a Christian, he thinks. Spurgeon himself said, Men cannot say anything worse of me than they have said. I have been belied from head to foot and misrepresented to the last degree. My good looks are gone and none can damage me much now. Spurgeon suffered depression, constant health issues, spiteful church members, many other pains we never know about. There were times where he could not enter the pulpit because the pain was so great. But he continued to say until his dying breath, it would be a very sharp and trying experience to me to think that I have an affliction which God never sent me. That the bitter cup was never filled by his hand. That my trials were never measured out by him, nor sent to me by his arrangement of their weight and quantity. Family, it is through trials that the Lord will grow our faith. And every trial is sent to us by the hand of a good and merciful Father. So we see the passage ends with worship. After all that Isaac has been through, he's faced crisis, danger, wealth, rejection. He ends up going to Beersheba, a historic place of settlement. And it was in Beersheba, God gave, gave Abraham the, the peace with Abimelech through the well. It was a place where Abraham worshipped Yahweh. And the Lord showed his loving kindness. And here all the trials come to a head. And all Isaac knows to do is worship God. The Lord calls out to him. He appears to him again. But then Isaac builds an altar. Most likely sacrifices animals on that altar. He gave sacrifices uh, of all the wealth that God has given him. He worshipped. The Lord confirmed his promise that even in the midst of adversity, I am still your God. I am still with you. I will still multiply you for Abraham's sake. And they worshipped and they, they dug another well. <laughs> they named it Sheba, which is basically the same word, Beersheba. means oath. Meanwhile, Abimelech has a change of heart. Abimelech comes back and he says, listen, you know, we can see that God has been with you. And Isaac's like, what do you want to do with me? You sent me away. You hate me. But Abimelech can't deny that even though the have-nots have not, and they complained against him, he knew in his heart that Isaac had been with the Lord. Therefore, they needed to respect him and live in peace. 
Uh, and there may be some foul motive here. I don't know. He could be even treated, being treated poorly here. But they make a vow of, of peace together, to live in the land, to be kind to one another. The trial was over. After what was probably months, maybe years, of this going on back and forth, God was now giving peace. So family, what do you do when the trial comes? We have the option to curse God and run from Him, or we can run into His everlasting arms and worship through adversity. I'll end with one more illustration here. The place was Gethsemane. There were 11 disciples, one Savior, gathered in a garden to pray. It was the night he would be betrayed by one of his own, arrested by a mob of Jewish leaders, and would be mocked and kicked throughout the night. This was nothing, of course, compared to the six hours of God's wrath that would be poured out on his shoulders for the sin that we committed the next day. With an entire Jewish nation outraged by this innocent man and 11 disciples who can't stay awake to pray with him, what does Jesus do? He worships. He worships the Father. He pleads with the Father. Will you remove this cup? If there be any way, can you remove this cup? And as he prayed and he worshiped, the agony became worse and worse, even with angels coming to his attention. And he began to sweat drops of real blood on his face as he knelt to the ground. No one knows trial like the founder of our faith, Jesus Christ. It was the Father's will to give him a trial unlike any other, to crush the Son. He died fully God, fully man, a death that you and I deserved. The sinless Savior became the Lamb of God to take on our wrath that we might not die. Then he rose from the dead, proving that his power and authority are enough to atone for sins and make us children of God. And as children of God, who have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, we can say with Isaac, God is with me. God is with me. Is that enough? Is that enough for us to know that Jesus is alive? And that he's given us the gift of the Holy Spirit. I can stand as a preacher of God's word this morning. And I can promise you that because Jesus rose from the dead, the trial will not be forever. The story will end in peace. Jesus will win. It may be a long trial. But I promise if you trust him and you worship him through it, There is coming a day when no heartache shall come. If you're not in Christ, I would implore you to come to Jesus. Repent of your sins and believe in Him that your life might not be in vain. And if you're a Christian this morning, stop wasting your trials. Stop wasting your trials. Let's pray. 
thank you for listening to another message from the pulpit ministry of Main Street Baptist Church in Spindale, North Carolina. I hope that your soul has been edified as a result of hearing the Word of God preached and that God will continue to be glorified in your life as you worship Jesus. If you have any questions about the message you heard today, feel free to uh, check us out online and send an email. You can find us at www.mainstreetspindale.com or you can call us directly at 828-286-2291. Hope you have a wonderful day. God bless.